I certainly bring you greetings on behalf of your sister congregations all across the Presbytery of Middle Tennessee. I understand your pastor is attending a wedding of one of his brothers. I trust they had a grand celebration last night and perhaps even carrying over to the day. I'm honored to have been invited to have the opportunity to uh, stand in his stead here today. Again, from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 35 and 36. Do not therefore abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward. For you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. I've been rebuked, and I've been scorned. I've been rebuked, and I've been scorned, children. I've been rebuked, and I've been scorned. I've been talked about, sure as you The writer of the letter to the Hebrews, time and again throughout this epistle, encourages his readers to exercise endurance, the kind that Christ demonstrated, a patience, a fortitude that only comes from communion with Christ. For the Christian life is described in part as a hard, struggle with suffering. The imagery here is one of an athletic contest of combatants in a ring, of competitive distance runners pushing through pain in order to pursue the goal. After having been enlightened, the fight, the hill, yet looms large before, for becoming followers of Jesus does not end hardship but begins it in a new and intensive way. The hard struggle of the communities to which the letter of Hebrews was originally addressed were facing afflictions of verbal and physical abuse. A study of the primitive church planted in first century Asia Minor reveals the saga of Christians having to contend with religious discrimination with social ostracism, with economic deprivation, insult, injury, imprisonment, and then having one's personal property plundered while in prison are the kinds of ill treatments that many Christians in the first century suffered. They were rebuked, scorned, and worse than talked about. And they were able to endure all these things because they knew that they themselves had a possession better and abiding forever. Those who hoped in the Lord Jesus Christ were often deemed a threat to the prevailing religious and political orders of their environs. They were treated with contempt. It's hard to be hopeful 
about the future when all the forces of evil seem to be arrayed against you. The temptation in the wake of such disrespect and disregard was to grow weary in well-doing, to abandon the faith. Thus the call to practice perseverance, to exercise endurance. The repeated counsel to the church was that of fostering fortitude. Hold fast to the confession of your hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward, for you need endurance. Run. Run with perseverance the race that is set before you, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of your faith. Exercise endurance and continue to move toward the reign of God with joyful confidence. The composers of African-American spirituals birthed in the crucible of chattel slavery in the Americas of the 17th, 18th, and 19th centuries shared an existential and extraordinary kinship with the writer of Hebrews. Black poets and preacher to the Hebrews both knew the earthly agonies and the eternal aspirations of a people who were called to follow the crucified and risen one. Composers of African-American spirituals, like the writer to the Hebrews, knew all too well the cruel conditions of inhumane subjugation by one people lording over another. These songwriters and their ancestors knew about shackles and beatings, knew about families being severed apart on the seller's block, about being denied basic human liberties in the land of the free. And so they were given to write laments, laments that we now know as spirituals, affirming confidence in the righteousness of God in spite of it all. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Oh, Mary, don't you weep, don't you mourn. Pharaoh's army got drowned. Oh, Mary, don't you weep. My Lord, who what a morning. My Lord, what a morning. Oh, my Lord, what a morning. When the stars begin to fall. When the stars begin to fall. The Reverend Dr. Carl, Carl Mulberry, a former academic dean and professor at Stillman College, don't know if you know anything about Stillman, Stillman is one of our Presbyterian-related schools uh, located in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. Well, Dr. Mulberry published an article in the book titled God and Human Freedom, and his article was titled Hebrews and Spirituals. Soulful Expression of Freedom. He wrote these words. There are many parallels between Hebrews and spirituals. These are mutually instructive by interpretive purposes because both emerge out of similar conditions. In both, the human spirit attempts to adapt and to adjust 
the mind to certain harsh realities for the purpose of making the leap of transcendence, without which one could not maintain one's sense of humaneness and personhood. They are both meant to exhort and encourage a life in Christ. There is trouble all over this world. There is trouble all over this world, children. There is trouble all over this world. There is trouble all over this world. Bending down to pick up the Saturday, May 27th issue of the Wall Street Journal that was tossed alongside our garage door home, my eyes fell upon a photo of the featured article. It was a picture of uh, a full-length linen cloth draped over a coffin uh, being carried by a multitude of mourners. Uh, the, the caption underneath told the story of how this coffin came to be carried and photographed. The coffin contained the remains of one of the victims of a gunfire attack on a busload of Coptic Christians in Egypt just the day before. A group of Christians en route to St. Samuel's Monastery, about 190 miles south of Cairo, had their vehicle riddled by automatic weapon fire, killing 18 adults, 10 children, and wounding 24 others. This was the second mass murder of Egyptian Christians in their homeland in as many months. Remember how on Palm Sunday, two suicide bombings occurred in Coptic churches during the hour of worship, one in Tanta, the other in Alexandria, killing 45 and maiming scores of others. Ever since the video was, was released by the Islamic State in February of 2015, depicting the gruesome killing of 21 Libyan Christians, it seems as though it has become open season on Christians in that part of the world, marking a period of unprecedented persecution of Christians in modern history, so says the Wall Street Journal. Yesterday's copy of the Wall Street Journal communicated in photos and storylines the grief of families, friends, and nations who only recently have been rocked by terror attacks. Those in Manchester, in London, England, those attacked in Kabul, the capital city of Afghanistan, and Mosul, the capital of Iran. War continues to rage in Afghanistan and Syria and Iraq with no end seemingly in sight. Refugees from these war-torn nations continue to crowd into tent cities there in North Africa and in Turkey with thousands risking their life while attempting to cross the Mediterranean Sea over into Europe in vessels that I wouldn't trust to try to get me across the Tennessee River. 
National news continues to bombard us about the rift between Democrats and Republicans. One is almost tempted to throw up one's hands in resignation, to grow faint and weary. But as the church, we dare not give up on the world. God didn't. God hasn't. The Gospel text read earlier from the fourth Gospel contains the all-too-familiar verse, For God so loved the world, that God gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. We see John 3.16 on placards being held up by spectators in stadiums. Uh, we see it on billboards. We see it on yard signs. Uh, we see it on bumper stickers. So frequent is the reading and reciting and referencing of John 3.16 that sometimes we forget there's a verse that follows of equal importance. John 3.17. It reads in the New Revised Standard Version, Indeed, indeed, God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. John reports these words of Jesus that convey a realized eschatology. God's judgment of the world is not solely some future event, but realized right here, right now, in the present, initiated by Jesus having come into this world. God sent Jesus into the world out of love, not to condemn the world, not to dismiss the world and its inhabitants as being irredeemable. No. The coming of the only begotten as the incarnate word confronts the world with a decision, with a choice. Believe and have eternal life starting right here, right now. Or believe not and in that moment experience condemnation. Woe be unto us as a people of faith if all we do is cloister ourselves off behind hallowed walls. Woe be unto us if we cease to proclaim the gospel in word and deed or cease to advocate for the welfare of our neighbors in need, whether they be neighbors here in Franklin or in Mozambique. We are called continually to seek the welfare of the poor, the aged, the sojourner, the outcast, the widow, the orphan in their distress, for such is at the heart of true religion. A word uh, trickled down to me that uh, you are enjoying a study this summer in your adult Sunday school class of David Brooks' book, A Road to Character. And I hope I'm not, I hope this isn't a spoiler alert, but I understand your pastor plans on preaching a series of sermons uh, citing some of the stories found in that book. If you don't have a copy, get a copy. It is a worthy read. One of the chapters in Brooks' publication is titled Struggle. 
And in that chapter, he tells the story of one Dorothy Day, who was one of the founding and lifelong journalists for the Catholic Worker newspaper. Without telling too much of her story, I really want to point out that in her youth and in her young adult years, she was continually searching for meaning in life. And she found it, was found by it, in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. Her conversion was dramatic. She became a militant for him, a radical, some would say a revolutionary for social change, born of the demands of the gospel of Jesus Christ. She spent the rest of her life tirelessly in service to the poorest of the poor in her home city of New York during the Depression, during World War II, and up until the time of her passing, Dorothy was on the front lines of aiding neighbors in need. And she wrote, true worship is to work for justice and care for the poor and oppressed. Now, here again, the words from the epistle to the Hebrews. Do not, therefore, abandon that confidence of yours. It brings a great reward, for you need endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Endurance, an essential aspect of our confidence, of our faith. It includes an element of perseverance, persistence, when the fight seems long and the run all uphill. By provoking one another to love and good works, by not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, by encouraging one another, communing with Christ and with one another, as we will be doing here shortly this morning, we will discover that from such fellowship with God and with one another, a growing capacity to remain true to the course, no matter how difficult it becomes. We'll be able to tap into strength, to find the grace to reject any ideas of surrender, of shrinking back, with the capacity to keep on keeping on without giving up. Ain't gonna lay my religion down. Ain't gonna lay my religion down, children. Ain't gonna lay my religion down. Ain't gonna lay my religion down.